How's everybody doing? Doing well? We do want to just give you opportunities like that to just see different partners we, um, we have. Uh, you all know my passion for foster care. Um, I always tend to get frustrated that we tell people to keep their children and then we don't do foster care. But if we, if we don't save these kids, then we don't get the opportunity to see what God might do. And so, uh, man, it's, it is just an, an important ministry that, that, that is out there in our community that we're involved in. And so if you get a chance, stop by. Um, the other thing is I heard somebody whisper, and I don't know who it was, so I'm not even trying to embarrass whoever I heard this. They go, during the song, we were, after reading the Apostles' Creed, I hear, are we a Catholic church? <clears throat> and the answer is actually yes. Where, where's this caller? It can't be a Catholic church. He's never calling. Let me just explain to you a little bit. The term Catholic, all it means is just universal church. And so, in other words, when we talk about the Catholic Church, we're not referencing the Roman Catholic Church. We're not, a, we're not a Roman Catholic Church, but we are a church that at the end of the day, we believe that Jesus Christ is who He said He was, that He was proclaimed in His Word to truly be the Savior and King of all things, that at the end of the day, the only means by which we come to Him is through faith and faith alone, believing that at the end of the day, He is King of all kings and Lord of all lords, and He wins. And all churches that embrace this reality are what we call Catholic churches. So next time somebody goes, oh, do you, do you go to the Catholic church? You should say, yeah, I do. I go to the Catholic church. Just caveat it. Explain it <clears throat> so they understand it. So anyways, just, I don't want anybody uh, worried about the fact that if I'm going to start wearing a collar or not next week. Some of you are just hoping I'll start wearing shoes instead of flip-flops. <clears throat> but don't forget, Jesus wore sandals. Now somebody's going, then why doesn't he wear one of those flowy rope things? My gosh. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we're going to be open God's Word today. If you'd like a Bible, there's some Bibles coming, coming down. Just raise your hand. We'd love to, to get you uh, uh, the Bible if you don't have it. Feel free to steal it. We'd like for you to steal it. We'd love for you to have uh, that particular copy. We just believe God's truth is found in there. And uh, all of us that have ever known Jesus Christ, we've been changed by that book. So... Here's what we're going to be doing today. You can open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we got back into 1 Corinthians uh, and uh, after going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And one of the things that I talked about last week that's important to where we're going, and you're going to hear this word a lot, so let me just reemphasize it. You're going to hear the word story. Now again, when I say the word story, it's what I talked about last week. I have a story, you have a story. It's kind of at the end of the day, it, it, it says who we are and what we're about and what defines us and and so in other words, when I use the word story, I'm not talking about a fable or a fairy tale or anything like that. I'm just talking about the story. And specifically, we've been talking about this idea of God's story and the way that now Paul is going to use this idea of resurrection to begin to land into us an understanding of what it means that Jesus Christ was resurrected. Now, one of the things that we talked about specifically to the Corinthians, when he says he wants them to know is that at the end of the day, the whole point, one of the major points of 1 Corinthians, and I think this is so important to understand, and, and it was funny, one of my kids and I got into a discussion about this. Uh, I came home, and one of my kids just was demanding and demanding and demanding, and I looked at my, my kid and I said, hey, it's funny, you, you, right now you're acting like everything is about you, and my kid goes, well, well it is, isn't it? And I wanted to look at him and say, you little Corinthian. They wouldn't have got it, so I didn't go there. 
But it's that idea, the story's not about us. It is about Jesus Christ. It's about the God of the universe. And so Paul's going to unpack for us what this story's about. And some parts of the story we learned last week, kind of like our own stories. There's parts of it that we like. There's parts of it that we don't like. But sometimes the parts that we don't like, what we tend to do is we, be, we tend to twist them or manipulate them or cajole them or do something so we don't have to deal with it. And this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They were, they were kind of shamed. And specifically in 1 Corinthians 15, they were kind of shamed by the resurrection. It wasn't what people believed in. It didn't match the culture around them. And so this word resurrection, when Paul comes into it, the thing we have to understand is he wasn't talking about just life after death. He wasn't talking about a general term for what happens to people, where they go when they die. At the end of the day, what he meant and what he was talking about is found in verse 23 and following, where he's going to say this statement is that by fact, verse 20, Jesus Christ was raised from among the dead. He was among the dead, and God the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raised him never to die ever again. Now, you know the Corinthians are going, whoa, <laughs> a little bit much, Paul. Why? Because to the Greek and Roman world, they would have thought, resuscitate a dead person? <laughs> That's nasty. Why would I want to be resuscitated? In fact, they more had this idea that we're just going to be these kind of floating ghosts for all eternity. And so even in some ways, the way they lived is this was the best it was ever going to get. And Paul's coming in and declaring to them, no, this is not the best it's ever going to get. This is merely a foretaste of what it's going to be like. Eventually one day, his whole argument around, around resurrection is, is that because this is only the appetizer, we are going to exist one day in a time and a place with real physical bodies just like now, we're going to eat together, we're going to work together, we're going to, we're going to do things together. It is going to be very, very real, but just imagine this. It's going to be without any sin or decay inside of the world. I, I tried to imagine that the other day. In fact, I was at a dinner with some good friends, and one of the things she said is she just goes, gosh, she goes, we're trying to discuss through how weird it's going to be because we feel like so often about who we are is defined by just some of the sin and decay and terrible things that go on in life. And, and it was just mind-blowing to try to figure out what's the world going to be like if suddenly we remove sin out of it. We don't know what to do with that. But Paul is going to build the case that's exactly what God's going to do. We're going to live in a real world with a real universe. We're going to have real bodies. We're going to talk and interact. We're going to enjoy one another. The only thing that's now going to be missing is the sin and the death that so decays our world. I mean, just imagine if you could get rid of one thing right now. Right now, if all of a sudden we could wave a magic wand and there's peace in the Middle East. You think people would be like, you know, no, we kind of like this whole tension thing. But it's even more intimate than that. These last few weeks, we've watched people as they battled with cancer and died. Imagine knowing that in the future, no one will ever die from cancer. It goes even deeper than that. Imagine those of you that are married going home and never ever having an argument with your spouse again. Some of you are like, we don't. Yes, you do. <laughs> you just don't realize it. Imagine never having to worry about your kids again. Imagine not have to ever vote again. <laughs> Do you know in heaven, there's no voting? 
God's just king. And so every four years, he's still king. Here we go. I mean, it's like, yes, amen. So, by the way, I watched my first Republican debate this last week. And at the end, I again proclaimed, come quickly, Lord Jesus. (laughs) But he wanted them to get that the ramifications we're huge, that we've got to believe only what God tells us and nothing past that. It's the point of 1 Corinthians 6, 7 through, 6 through 7. Just don't go past what's written. Stick to what's written. Believe what's written. That the truths that are laid down in Scripture, you can believe them and bank your life on them. Even if they're not popular in the world, just hold to them because they're so key. Because his point is, if there's no resurrection, we're still in our sin. And if we're still in our sin, that makes all those 500 plus people that told us that Jesus Christ raised from the dead as a bunch of liars. The whole world now sits in massive decay, and if anybody should be pitied, it's us as Christians. But now look down in verse 20. After saying all that, I love this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's like, in light of everything I've just said, every little hypothetical situation that I've just laid out for you, those are hypothetical. His point, Acts 9, I saw the resurrected Jesus. He's real. It's not a debatable thing. It's not something that at the end of the day that we're looking at it and going, oh, we wonder if it's actually true. What he's saying is, and by saying this idea, but now this factual understanding that at the end of the day, it is not something to quabble over. It is not something to try to to figure out. It's not something for us to try to understand how did God do it. At the end of the day, it's just a statement of fact. I don't know how God did it, but I literally saw the resurrected Jesus, and so did over 500 people. It's just fact. He wants us to get that and wrap our minds around that, wrap our lives around that. Because really what he's now going to talk about is we know this. Doesn't our world need to be fixed? It's great. And we went through Ecclesiastes, right? And we're like, oh yeah, we're going to hang out together and enjoy one another and be engaged with one another. And this world, we should enjoy every aspect of it. But deep in the back of our minds, we know this world's not right. There's something wrong with it. It needs to be fixed. And the whole point of 22-28 is this reality. King Jesus is going to fix it. So in chapter 15, this is what they're going to engage in. This is what he's going to be a part of. So starting in verse 20, right after that, he's, he's now laid out all this hypothetical stuff. And he said he's been raised from the dead. But now we're going to understand in this paragraph, what do you mean that King Jesus is going to fix this? How is it that he's going to do it? And he wants them to see that this incarnation of Jesus was the moment that the Father appointed his Son, and through him the whole universe is going to be brought back into its proper order that he intended from the beginning. It's not just about people being saved, while that's a part of it, but it's about Jesus rescuing all of creation. In Romans 8, we find out that the whole world is realizing there's something wrong with it. He said creation screams out saying, there's something wrong, and everything that he's putting forward now is to get to this idea in which he's going he's to help us understand this world is going to be completely, totally rescued by Jesus, not just the people. It points back to Genesis 1 through 3. If you look down in there, you're going to see like this term like Adam in there. 
He says a man, but then he clarifies in verse 22. He's going he's to go back and he's going he's to kind of, I think this is what he had in his mind, that he's going to call us back to help us understand that there's surprising and, and this, that yet haunting reality that happened in Genesis 1 through 3, that even from that moment we were saying, God, something has to change, something has to be fixed. It's his passionate concern. Even the way Paul would have grown up at that time, the Jewish people of that day, when you look at like the minor prophets and all the literature that was written between the time of the minor prophets and Jesus, there was no doubt that they grew up just yearning for this day in which God was going to fix all things. They believed that God was going to come. They believed that God was going to be king over the whole world. They believed that he was going to restore Israel to all of her glory. They, they believed he was going to defeat any nation that suppressed his people for all these different years. They believed every person would be, that there were his would be raised in righteousness from the dead, that there would be this new world in which he would reign in. But how this would happen, they were wondering, how's it going to be? How's God going to pull this off? If God was really God, they believed it was going to happen. They were certain that it was going to happen. But for these people, they were sitting there wondering, how is he going to do it? And all of a sudden, into history comes Jesus. The world had no clue. They were all waiting for it. The world was demanding this Messiah at that time. But into it comes Jesus Christ. Instead of God waiting to come back at the end, little did they know that it's not about coming back at the end, but some man came in in the midst of history. It would have been shocking to people to hear about the fact that God came in flesh. He came down to this world. He lived amongst us. And in living amongst us, lived this perfect life. He, was, he died, was buried. He rose again. He ascended back to the Father now as this one who had been resurrected. He was fully in human form in what he was standing at the right hand of the Father. And everybody would have been totally confused about it except for Paul in Acts 9 said, but I saw it. I saw it. I know this to be true. And he said, not only that, but being raised in the midst of it, in the midst of human history, is this promise that one day there's going to be this point that all are God's people. He was, and look at that first part of verse 20, he was the first fruits of more that are going to come. It's not now about one event at the very end. It's about two events. And in these two events in which every all of history is hung, Jesus Christ came, he defeated death, and he became what was called the first fruits. It's a reference back to Leviticus in which it was the first fruits and more is to come after it. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he now says this statement, each in their own order, if you look down in there, are going to be raised. He's going to now set out, what does it look like that this each in its own order are going to happen? I think sometimes when we look at that statement, I think that we as Christians sometimes hope it's going to happen. But the question I have for you today is, do you believe it's going to happen? It's a question that has to be answered. See, this is why he's coming in to talk to him about it, is that once we answer that question, everything else gets put in order. I would say this, is because we haven't answered that question as sufficiently as we ought to, this idea, do I honestly believe in the resurrection, a lot of the reason that we live the way we do that's so disconnected from God's story is because we don't believe the end like we ought to. 
I think once we get an idea of what it's going to be, we will start to treat this life like it was intended to be treated, not as this kind of throwaway life. I don't believe that. And I see so many Christians that just say, oh, it's going to burn anyways. But I think instead what we'll do is we'll treat it as this place now that we live, but we understand this is only the appetizer. I can get rid of my bucket list. I can get rid of all these things that drive me. I can then also quit worrying so much about things. Oh my goodness, we worry. I mean, not you, me, my wife and I. But in verse 20, he wants him to get, he's just the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The promise that there's going to be more to come. There's more to come after this. And then he's going to pick up, when you look down inside the next verse, he's going to talk about this idea of, of Adam and Christ and, and what does this mean? Now, in some ways, we kind of sit down and we go, oh my gosh, my head is going to explode thinking about this first fruits Adam thing. But let me see if I can put it together for you. In verses 45 through 49, he's going to reference Adam again. This is what I mean. Remember when I said he's using Genesis 1 through 3 to help us understand where he's going? In this particular context, he's going to use this idea of Adam to ask the question, who are you in or who do you belong to? Do you belong to Adam which, by the way, everybody that was ever born belongs to Adam. Or, he's going to do in verse 26, do you belong to Christ? Now, this, this, this little question that he's asking about this is one of the most important questions that any of us can answer inside of this room. Am I still in Adam, or do I belong to Christ? Now, when Adam sinned, his point is, and you're going to see this, it just sets off this domino effect in the world. I mean, I, sometimes I wonder if I could be back there and just see it and just, just feel the shudder of the universe. The moment that they took of that fruit and God said, don't do it, just the shudder that must have gone through all of creation as suddenly even Adam and Eve realized, oh my gosh, what did we do? And it's a shudder that's just been here all throughout time. It's what's caused wars and chaos and disease. It's what's caused families to split apart. It's what's caused all these things. It's just this shudder that wasn't just ripping through the universe at that particular time, but it just continues to rip through the universe is his point. When Adam and Eve did this, everything now was defined by him. He puts in the, in the Greek a definite article, meaning it's just not this Adam kind of, you know, metaphorical person. When he puts the article in front of it, he means there was really a guy there. Just as real as there was really a Jesus Christ, there was really this Adam, and there was really this Eve. And you got to understand that the moment that they ate of that tree, the moment that they took of it, it sent the shudder through all of the universe. And now at the very end of it, the only outcome is this thing called death. No human escapes it. Every person is going to face it. But then he says this next statement, and I love it. He says, in Christ, all will be made alive. Oh. I mean, just sit, if I seriously sat with you today and just said, hey, if you stay in this, you will die. But if you do this, you will live. I mean, doesn't it make sense? You would be like, hey, I'm kind of digging the live thing. He says, that's what I'm talking about. Who it is that you are in, who you belong to matters because at the very end of it, the outcome is either life or death. There's no other route. I know a lot of us sometimes think, well, I kind of am going to create my own way. But the scriptures say there's no other way. It's either one or the other. That's all that it can be. 
In writing that Christ will be made alive, he means that those who are in Christ, in verse 26, those who belong to Christ, now all of a sudden, while one domino effect was started one way, the idea is now is another domino got started the other way. It's that when Jesus Christ came out from the grave, a lot of times we just go, oh, he came out of the grave. Are you kidding me? When Jesus Christ came out of the grave, nothing was ever going to be the same. I know in a lot of ways we read it, you know, and we see people terrified and trying to reach their hand inside of him and stuff going, oh, this resurrected thing is weird. But literally when that domino fell, we find out that at his resurrection and his ascension, God the Father declared him as king. In fact, he's going to say, look down there, he must reign. He is the king now reigning and accomplishing God's purposes. And the question then is, in this domino effect, what's the purpose that now God is going to make us all alive, this future tense, that he's going to do it, that he's this pledge, this first fruits, this guarantee of something. What is it that Jesus Christ is doing? And I think at the end of it, the thing we have to realize is that what he's doing in this world is he's setting everything in order for this one final day in which Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is king of kings and Lord of Lords, and right now he is doing everything and preparing for that day. Everything that's ever stood against God. Even having CPC here today is an understanding of the audacity that we have as human beings to say that we can define life. When God says, No, I define life the moment that it happens in conception inside of a womb. All these things that just for years and years have stood against him. And we think, oh God, what's going on? Are you winning? And the whole point is just this undergirded reality. There's going to come a day where no one will have a doubt who is the king and who's true. No one will be able to stand against him one day. It says that in him, that all, everything melts away from him like wax. The only thing that will happen when we stand before that king one day is every knee will just bow. We always hear people say, well, I can't wait to ask God. Give him a piece of my mind. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know when we all stand before God, it's just going to be this. I got nothing to say. Our king is king. Now, in this whole idea of putting things together, the question sometimes comes up, well, but what happens like to those who are alive when Christ returns? Well, later on in verse 51, we're going to realize that not everybody's going to sleep. I've always wondered this, and I really would love this. This is just something in the back of my head I would love to happen. We know that when Jesus returns, not everybody's going to be asleep. That's just referencing to people that are Christians. I actually want to be in that group. I'm like, oh my God, that'd be cool. Can I be in that group that doesn't have to die? Some of you are like, oh, come on. Don't be a weenie. I don't want to die. Not only that, we learn in 1 Thessalonians that they will be the first ones to go. Those of us that are still alive, if we're alive, are the next ones to go. And his point is, is that once God has collected his church together, verse 24, look down there. Then comes the end. After we take these people that are the ones that died in Christ, all those that still remain, finally when he's called up and all these have been resurrected from the dead, his point is, is we've now arrived at the end. That word telos, it's a, it's a Greek word that literally what it means just means to achieve the goal or to arrive at the goal. 
The idea that Paul wants to convey is that the time of this age is coming to an end. It's, it's going to come to a completion. It's inescapable. When the domino was hit by Christ, everything got set into motion in this amazing way in which finally the last domino is going to fall, the last person that gets resurrected. And oh my gosh, can you imagine just that moment inside of the, the heavenly realm when all of a sudden somebody announces, the last one of the harvest has been gathered in. Go and get the rest of them. In other words, everything is moving in that way. It's just a motion of dominoes, but eventually the end is going to come. It's something that everybody's been looking forward to. He's reigning, and his reign was inaugurated his resurrection and his ascension. And every rule and every authority and every power at this point, he says, verse 24, are going to be destroyed. At the defeat of death, it's the idea of the resurrection of all people. Finally, at that moment, this thing that's the result of sin called death is that Jesus Christ in some way, and I wish I could understand how he's going to do it, but he's going to grab death by the throat. And in fact, the way the imagery that would be there is back in the day is that sometimes they would grab the defeated king and they would put him on the ground and the other king would stand over him, place his foot on his neck, and then press. Graphic. But let me tell you something. I got to think that when Jesus Christ does that, no one's going to be sad. I think there's going to be an elation through the heavenly realm and all throughout the universe. Jesus Christ at that moment is the victor. The final enemy, death itself, will be defeated. And finally, verse 28, now we will live in this all in all. In other words, what he's saying is that there will finally come this time that though the fabric of the universe was ripped by sin, all will one day be brought back together. Everything that stood against God will be banished. That's what it means for Jesus Christ to defeat everything. He's going to defeat every demonic force. He's going to defeat everything that stood against God. He's going to defeat sin and Satan and sickness and everything and at the very end of it the only thing that's going to be left is it is that Jesus Christ and then God's good intention this is what I meant from the beginning sin was not supposed to enter my world death was not supposed to enter my world and my son has defeated them all yeah thank you God's going to put it back to right he quotes Psalm 110 in verse 25 I love this it declares it's, it's this cleanup project that's currently going on that have stood against God. All these different things is that Jesus is reigning until that time. He's, he's sitting there cleaning everything up. Chapter 8, verse, or Psalm 8, 6 is quoted in 27. The idea that now a human actually is going to do this. It's not just God's going to do this, but he was going to send a human to accomplish it. Adam failed, but there's another man that's going to come along, and he's the one that's going to be victorious. He's going to fulfill what humanity was supposed to. This King Jesus is going to do it all. His rule is going to have implications beyond anything we can understand. And somehow at the very end, not only is he going to defeat death, but it says in the book of Revelation, he's going to defeat Satan. In fact, in 1 John, it talks about this, that Jesus said that when he came, he came to defeat the works of the evil one. Everything that has been sowed that's wrong in here, his point being, he will finish it for good. Death is the enemy, and Jesus Christ will win. Now, it forces us to ask this question. If death is the enemy... Why is it inside of our culture that we tend to put makeup on our enemy? Let me explain. 
The other day I was sitting with somebody and the person said to me, you know what, man, this, I was over at so-and-so's house and they were dying. It was a beautiful death. There is nothing beautiful about death. That's like saying, man, Saddam Hussein and what he did on 9-11 was beautiful. Not Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden. Gosh. You're leaving here going, no, are they the same? <laughs> They're not. I think sometimes we look at it, and not, don't get me wrong, on the other side of death, it's glorious. Paul's later going to talk about the fact, oh, death, where's your victory? Where is your sting? In other words, whenever the Christian is sitting there dying and death seems to mock and Satan whispers in their ear this idea that, see, I've won, I'm the victor over it. The moment that person breathes their last, we learn in 2 Corinthians 5, that they're ushered off to be with their Savior because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so the whole time after death, they mock death because death has no victory and death has no sting. But going up to death, it is nasty and it's ugly and it's wrong and it was never intended to be a part of God's creation. There's no such thing as a glorious death or a noble death. There's no such thing as a beautiful death. All of death is just simply one thing, an enemy. And Jesus Christ defeats it. And when all this is done, look at verse 24. He would deliver the kingdom to God the Father. In other words, now he's collected all these people at his own. And those of us in here that know Jesus one day, just think about this. The Son is going to have all of us after beautifying us and dying for us. And we're all going to be standing there in some way watching this interaction between the Father and the Son. And finally the Son is going to look at the Father and say, all these that you've given me, here you go. In this beautiful act of love where this gift from the Son to the Father where He goes, Father, remember how you told me to go down and to rule and to take care of all that stuff that stood against you? Remember all those things? And then you told me you were going to have a people that I was going to go rescue and save. Here they are. Now you know at that moment all of us sitting there, I think we're not going to know what to say, but I think I'm going to reach over to one of you and go, dude, pound it out. Here we are. <laughs> Everything, that's what I mean. When Jesus Christ rose from the grave, everything began to move this way. And no matter what you say and no matter what you think, I'm here to tell you, there is going to come a day where King Jesus is victorious. That at the end of the day, when he died and was buried and rose again in the center of the Father, everything began to be put into place in which no matter what happens, our King will reign over everything and all things will be restored in the way that God intended it to be. Everything. Now, one of the ones that's hard to understand is what does it mean that his son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection? I thought, I thought Jesus was fully God. He is. He's 100% God. And in personhood, he is absolutely co-equal with God, but in how they form and function themselves together, he just chooses to submit to the Father. And when he's all done, he's going to say, my reign is over. I will sit here at your right hand and reign with you. And the crazy part that Revelation tells us is that all of us that are his, we will reign with him. I bet you didn't know you were going to be reigning one day. Because you were adopted sons and daughters of the king, 
In some way, all of us are going to reign in God's good creation. Is that what he means by this is that everything now will be in order, it will be set in place. And what do we need to know about then? Well, the one thing that this doesn't do, and this is how I want to finish, is I want to take you to Daniel 12. It's back in the Old Testament, and then we're going to go back to the book of Revelation. What are we going to look, what are we going to need to understand about that throne room so we can get the full effects of it? Go with me to Daniel 12. Actually, we're going to teach through the book of Daniel uh, next uh, summer, it looks like. But go to Daniel 12 and look at verse 2. How is it that Jesus is going to bring about his reign in the end? What does it look like in that moment between him and the Father? Verse 2. He says this. And many of those who sleep in the dust, kind of what Paul was talking about of the earth, they shall awake. Some, he says, to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What is it that we need to know? Everybody one day is going to awake to stand before God. No one escapes. Now that word contempt is kind of a shallow word. When you get to the book like uh, Isaiah, at the very end of it in Isaiah, he, he talks about this idea that what he means by contempt is the reality of an eternity apart from God in the worst imaginable place that you could ever, you could ever dream up. Careful, Todd. Don't go all fire and brimstone. In the chain of events, though, the Bible says that's what's going to happen. Go with me to Revelation chapter 20. We see inside of this throne room that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 11, we see that in, when he gets into that throne room, it's the Father and the Son, and they're interacting via the Holy Spirit in this. And, and John, the apostle, is being brought in to see this particular throne room judgment that's going to be happening. It says, and then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence. And this is what I mean. Earth and sky fled away. So who's going to stand before God and say, let me ask you, I have a few questions. No place was found for them. I saw the day dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades, we see this, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he also was thrown into the lake of fire. Remember how I said that question at the very beginning? Who you're a part of matters. When you and I stand before God one day, if we still belong to Adam, in this chain of events, the only outcome is the lake of fire. The Bible says it burns forever. Not only that, but when you go to Revelation 21, he tells us a little bit about it. Verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestables, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is just the second death. Let me say this very carefully. If anyone in here does not know Jesus Christ, if you've not come to him by faith, this is your future outcome. 
Just as sure as Jesus Christ came the first time, He's coming the second time. And I'm not even saying this right now to try to scare you in some weird way or not way. I'm just simply stating fact that there will come a day in which Jesus Christ is going to come back in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Jesus Christ the Lord. And right now during this time, our Father is offering grace and mercy to all who will come to Jesus Christ by faith. But if you choose to reject that, I promise you, you will experience not His mercy, mercy nor his grace at that point you will instead experience his justice and his wrath this is not something to be trifled with toyed with played with if you've never come to Jesus Christ your God <sighs> today's the day some of you have been playing games. You know you've been playing games. See, as a shepherd, I'm going to give an answer for how I've talked to you about this. You understand that one of the things pastors are to do, because we learned this from 1 Corinthians 3, is to prepare their people to stand before God well. If I don't be honest with you about this, it's not something to be trifled with. Today's the day to know this God of the universe. But once you know Him, go to 21.1. Oh my gosh. Not only did John see this horrific reality of those whose name was not found in the book of life, who, who didn't come to Jesus Christ by faith and faith alone, but verse 1, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had, had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw this holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, what God intended from the very beginning. And he's going to dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be them uh, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says to me, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, they will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. <gasps> so in other words, I bend the knee now and I get to call him daddy. Isn't that weird? This great God who is fully just and wrathful is offering grace and mercy right now to all who will believe and those who believe he will call my son and daughter. <sighs> and that's why Paul says this resurrection thing is kind of important. It matters. Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the implications of the resurrection. Christian Burkhardt is going to take three weeks to walk us through this next part of 1 Corinthians 15. But listen to me. It's a question I want to ask you. Do you really believe the resurrection is true? Really? Now don't answer it. Do you really believe the resurrection is true? Because next week we're going to ask the question if the resurrection is really true. Why do we live the lives that we live then? But oh, praise God, I'm here to announce to you today 
Jesus has truly risen. And he is coming back one day. Amen? All right. Let's all stand up. If you're somebody today that would like to know how you can come into faith in Jesus Christ, I'd love to talk to you. We'll meet you over at this room over here on the side. If you need prayer, for whatever reason, what's going on in your life, man, we'd love to pray for you. I know we're going to have a baptism here coming up. Um, we're going to be baptizing at least one person. If anybody else would like to get baptized today, we'd love to talk to you about baptism. Why is everybody leaving? Did I say something wrong? Jesus reigns. Amen? Amen. Good. Let's sing.